0: Welcome to the Drop the Mic Podcast, where we'll dive into conversations with some of the music industry's most established professionals. Like all of our episodes, what you will hear today has been created and curated by Stanford students who are breaking their way into the music scene. Thanks for tuning in. Let's get into the conversation.
1: Hello, everyone. Thanks for joining us today. My name is Richard, and I'm here with my classmates, Samina and Dante. We're all undergraduate students at Stanford University, and we're in a class called The Changing World of Popular Music. In this podcast episode, we will be exploring the musical journeys of rising talent from Stanford, including amazing producer, songwriter, and singer, Clarissa Carter, and the band Sloan Wooly, which was founded by Jack Seigenthaler and Henry Ingram while studying at Stanford and who expanded to include Ben Josie. We will go ahead and get started with Clarissa Carter, and I'll hand it over to Samina for the first question.
2: So I was curious if you could talk about major turning points and highlights of your music career. Yeah. Okay. So I guess it would start at age 12, 13. I got this free MacBook from school and I played around with GarageBand for a bit and just for fun. But I like made this really cute little (laughs) song to my mom that was like, I love you, mom. Thanks for everything. And she was like, wait a second. This actually sounds pretty good for like what you have. Let's try to invest getting you a studio. And I was like, yeah. So she used her little bit but like the rest of her credit card left to invest in this studio for my bedroom. And within like two weeks I released an album called milk. <laughs> it's not out anymore, but that was probably my turning point because I started so young in releasing music that it was never really a fear of mine to release things. Whereas I know a lot of people that I know now, they're like, Oh my gosh, how do you release music? How do you do X, Y, Z? It's, it's really not that hard. It's just getting it out there. And and owning your stuff. (laughs) So that was a turning point. And then I think also my years at Stanford have been a turning point. So I'm someone who tends to like to do everything, but I've realized that music has kind of coalesced into every fragment of my being. So throughout my four years or five years, I guess, of Stanford, I wrote a ton of songs and produced a lot of stuff, but I never like released it. Kind of because I kind of started having that fear because everyone's so successful at Stanford and everything and I just like was like who's going to listen to my stuff? But senior year I was just like you know what I have this I have a ton of songs and they sound like the same vibe and they're all about my experience at Stanford and they're very close to me. Let me just release it like and that was my Spotlight EP. So I released that last February of my senior year. And I think that has really escalated my career. To a sense where I'm like oh I want to do this professionally like this is something that it's no longer just a hobby or it or a passion it's just like my living <laughs> um. I listened to the spotlight record right before this meeting and I was amazed by it I love
1: the vibe that it gives off it's going to be on my heavy repeat going forward so you have a new fan um, oh thank you I was wondering if you can speak a bit about what it's like to to actually release that music that is so close to you and that you're very attached to?
2: Yeah, it's definitely scary. It's definitely, I'm someone who like says I don't care about what other people think, but of course everyone cares about what other people think. And so releasing something, like you can't change it, it's out there, it's done. And you just have to like own it and feel confident within yourself because regardless of what other people think, like if you're happy with it, you should be happy at the end of the day. And that's the kind of mindset that I'm trying to incorporate with my craft and with my music but then like hearing things like what you said and hearing that people are actually vibing with stuff that I put out like that that like makes my day and it makes me want to make make more music.
0: How do you
3: think you're going to go about making sure you keep the vulnerability and being
1: able to put your own words and ideas in your music once it gets to a commercialized state?
2: Yeah oh I don't know I think I always have the mindset that you're always growing as an artist and so like what I'm putting out now is professional in my mind and in my being so I don't think about like oh what is it going to be like when I'm like really big and professional because I feel like I'm already there it's just like I'm not big per se but like I feel like I don't I don't try to think about the like fans more so of just my artistic craft and trying to be a perfectionist in what i do personally and i think that'll probably help me if i do end up getting to that level if i don't like i don't know every the future is I, i'm not gonna be like oh i'm gonna be the next beyonce or something like yeah. <laughs> but i think having that mindset is important to not like think like oh when i make it big then do xyz and i guess also talking about like that vulnerability kind of thing it's really hard to like especially as a female producer, owning your craft and like feeling confident in what you're doing. And that's what I'm working on for my master's project this year. I'm getting my master's in education and I'm working on this project to help increase the number of female producers in the music industry just because the number is so low. Like, I guess, what percentage do you think there are? 5%. 1.2. Oh,
1: it's 5%.
2: 5%. Okay, so the answer is 2%. So wow. there are like more p- female pilots, think about that, than there are female producers, <laughs> percentage-wise, mm-hmm. which is insane to me. I don't think your sex or your gender should determine whether you want to create music because it's just such a passionate thing that shouldn't have to revolve around objectifying people or or having these barriers. Like, And there's a lot of barriers for females to get included within the industry. And so what I'm focusing on th- this year is creating a platform to make... A safe space for females to both hone their skills learn their skills and then also get their foot in the door in the music industry and so i'm really excited about that project launching but that's been my livelihood because i want more female producers to be able to incorporate their vulnerability and not be too afraid to do so
1: i think you touched on it a little bit but what are the barriers in the system what might fix that
2: mm-hmm yeah i think it's just partly ingrained in society so like when I think about a producer especially before like doing this project and everything I would think of a dude that's horrible like why I mean it used to be like think of a doctor and people would only think of dudes and now it's 50 50 so like how are we going to be able to get that implemented within the music industry when it's not necessarily the most lucrative field in the world so I guess financially it's a barrier for a lot of females but also even if you try things, a lot of females tend to have like a perfectionist mindset, like at least I do. And so you don't want to release something that's not good and receive feedback for fear of people thinking that that's your level. And so I see a lot of times male producers releasing stuff with complete confidence and because they're able to have that confidence even if it is not the best thing in the world and, and still owning it. And I think if we can pursue more of a confidence mindset within the industry for females, I think that would make it a lot better. It's that, and then it's also just not being taken seriously. So a guy could be like, oh, I just started producing yesterday and you would consider them a producer, but a female could be producing for 10 years and people will still give them unsolicited feedback or not even consider them a a producer or they're just like, oh, you're just a singer songwriter who produces your tracks. And I've gotten that a lot of times too with my music. Like they're like, oh, who did your music? I'm like, I did a hundred percent of it, (laughs) like a hundred percent. And I don't take it as negative in any way, shape or form. When people ask that, it's just something that I've like realized the more and more people are wondering about how something's created. It's like the assumption,
1: oh, you didn't make it, like, who made it, rather than, oh, like, did you make this?
2: Right, right. I had a question about your songwriting process. Is it kind of something that just happens naturally when you feel inspired, or do you specifically put time aside to work on your music? When I was in school, I never had time to really set, like, this, I'm going to be making a song today. From 3 p.m. to 4 p.m. Like, that's not how I, at least, create. I usually get inspirations through my life. Lyrics pop up in my head in the most random times, like at the grocery store or with a friend. And I always make sure to have like a voice memo recording of it so that I don't forget it. So that later on when when I feel like I don't have inspiration, I check it out and then the inspiration comes back. I also tend to just create things on Logic a lot, just for fun. I'll like start with like some really, really, really simple rhythm or really simple note and just go from there. And that really helps me too. Yeah, the editing process for me is pretty simple. I tend to like complete a song to its fruition, like within a week, usually. Sometimes ugh, some songs stay like, I want to perfect it. And it's like, like for Hell, like the song Hell on my album Spotlight, literally I created that song my freshman year and then forgot about it and then senior year was like oh my gosh like i can't just forget about this song and then finish some fine-tune details and that that ends up that song ended up being like a lot of people's favorite off of the album can you talk a little bit more about what the collaboration looks like from start to finish like, you want pre-covid or post-covid <laughs> we can
1: we can do both
2: okay pre-covid like i'll have someone reach out to me or i'll reach out to them and be like hey we should do something together And then a lot of times people are like, yeah, totally. And then either people tend to have a track already done that they just want a feature on, or like we work together. I've only worked with the consensus of a whole song with this like EDM guy, actually. But my other featured songs that I'm on, the songs were already basically done. They just wanted like a feature. And so that's how most of my collabs happen. Yeah, I guess post or during COVID <laughs> it's been a lot of fun just sending gigabytes of, <laughs> of audio files back and forth. So it's a lot, but it's it's fun too. But I feel like the process is definitely longer than it would have been if we were able to sit in a room and listen together. Cause we both have different ears and we have different mm-hmm. tastes. So one thing that I like he may hate and vice versa and we have to come up with that, like, what's the word I'm thinking of? You know what I mean? Like the, I think I'm Yes, movie. compromise. Yes. Um, coming up with a compromise to make sure that we are both satisfied with the end product, which is hard because artists are just, we are, you know, we're crazy in the best way possible. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I think. I always tend to be someone who like is a pushover in a sense or like I used to be where like if people had opinions I'd be like okay cool I'll, I'll go with it but I'm not like that anymore like I can't it has to be perfect.
1: <sighs> it might be difficult but making sure that both of you like working towards that compromise to make sure that both of you are happy with the song will yeah. like make it be meaningful to
2: everyone involved. Mm-hmm regardless of time. And I think that really like hinders who you end up working with. Cause some people want to just like release something tomorrow. And I'm such a, I want to be at that level where I can just release something that I created yesterday, but I'm just not, not there yet.
1: Hmm. Moving a little bit away from the, producing. I saw that you opened up some shows for some big names before. Can you talk about what it's like to perform to perform your art and your music?
2: Yeah, it's a lot of fun, regardless of if there's a big name or not. Like If there's a crowd, it feels good.
3: I had a little bit uh, more of a question on, on identity. How have some of the identities that come out in everyday life affected what goes into your music? I mean, you've already been a little bit, shown us a little bit of what you know, being a female
0: artist and producer affects your music. But can you go into like a little bit more of that,
1: especially with, you know, like the different identities that you uh, see yourself as? Mm
2: -hmm. I think primarily just being a black woman, especially as really that identity has really like pushed forward my music, especially in college. Just navigating Stanford as a black woman, it's like hard, it's difficult and navigating yourself as a student at Stanford in general and not like selling yourself out to doing things that everyone else is doing just so you can make money or xyz I don't know I'm also a fly student and so I think I kind of had an advantage in where my mom would be happy with whatever I <laughs> with whatever I majored in and I had a lot of friends where you know parents would just not pay for them if they didn't major in computer science or something you know and like that identity like I'm just so happy I was able to freely be my artistic self and not worry about the pitfalls of that I mean I may have to in the future but yeah parents are very important too (laughs) like I'm just trying to think of like all my friends that have such amazing musical talents and don't consider it that important or anything because it's not that lucrative And that just makes me sad because like music is literally everywhere and it makes me so happy with my music and with my last EP especially. I won't like go too much into it, but (laughs) yeah. If you watch my like music video Hell or like the meaning behind Hell is like how Stanford can be just such an isolating place and like really hard for you to be your authentic self when you're trying to just please everyone around you. And yeah, it's about that. Did you get like from from your peers when they heard that song?
1: I guess, have you shared that context with other people like the context of the song and like, specifically that feeling that it that that Stanford has evoked? Has that resonated with your peers?
2: having people have their own meaning towards songs, but also explain where they came from in my point of view. And so navigating, that's why I don't have like, this is the meaning of a song, like publicly out there. Because like, why do that? No one really does that, even on Genius, like people like put a couple words down on like the line. But it's, I think that's the, the coolest thing about music is like having it resonate with yourself in different ways than the artist intended. And I think that's like really cool.
1: I think that covers it um, from my question.
2: Well, thank you guys so much for doing this. Thank you for taking the time.
1: I will be looking out for your future, your future work. um, And all all the best wishes to you.
2: Thank you, likewise. All right, I'll head on out. See you guys.
1: I hope you all had a great time learning more about Clarissa Carter. Now we're gonna be moving on to interviewing Sloan Wooly, a band that recently came out of Stanford. We're here with band members Ben and Jack. I was wondering if you guys could talk a little bit about where you're from and kind of early on what your relationship with music was before you became a band. Ben, let's begin with you.
0: Yeah, I'm from Seattle and around middle school is when I started getting into music. My friends and I put together a couple of rock bands and we were just playing pretty simple punk rock music and I was singing there's some pretty funny videos of me out there singing in our 8th uh, grade talent show. Jack's seen him a couple times. I was in the high school marching band and then orchestra for a year, and so it was always something that I enjoyed doing, but never something that I really thought I'd take seriously. It wasn't until my sophomore year at Stanford where I thought about the bigger picture and realized that music was something that I've always loved, something that's always gotten me excited, and and that feeling of playing with a couple friends and just jamming out when everybody's just locked in and working together is just my favorite feeling and so I had that realization and then decided to pursue a music major at Stanford so I ended up studying music science and technology.
1: You mentioned that you you did marching band what what specifically did you did you play?
0: I played a snare drum and recently at our we lived together at a place in nashville and we got a drum set there and it's been super fun to go back and and revisit that instrument
1: i just started dabbling in music production i didn't realize like how important and how encompassing the drum sounds actually are because a lot of times i thought it was just like bass it's like drum kits not a bass guitar being played a lot of times when you hear that Um, yeah that's so cool that you're getting into music production and now moving on to to jack can you talk a little bit about where you're from and kind of what your relationship with music was.
3: Much like Ben, I never expected this to be the centerpiece of my life uh, (laughs) after college. But here we are. I grew up in Connecticut and I started playing piano when I was six or seven. And I liked it. And um, I remember it was a real revelatory moment when I realized you could play and sing at the same time. That was a really exciting discovery for me. I got more and more excited about performing. I think I started performing maybe in my seventh or eighth grade talent show. I played like Let It Be or something. And that was a huge, I was like, oh, wow, this is really a cool feeling. And then I did theater in middle school and high school. um, But I didn't start really playing with a band until like 11th or 12th grade of high school. And we played a bunch of blues rock stuff. And again, I thought, wow, this is really cool. I'd love to do this in college. So when I went into college, I knew... I wanted to start some kind of band or play in some kind of band if, if the option presented itself. And I started asking around, took till I think sophomore year to get a group together. And it was sort of playing with a few different people and seeing who'd be willing to play. And eventually I met Trent Peltz. I lived in the same house as a, a guy named Trent Peltz, who's a brilliant keyboardist, brilliant songwriter, brilliant vocalist. And we ended up, uh, pairing up along with a guy named Henry Ingram, we had sort of the early makings of what would be the band at the time, Mammoth. And that was through senior year when we were so blessed to find Ben, who happened to have a bass guitar in his room. And <laughs> someone who knew we were looking for a bass guitarist, because ours had just graduated, uh, said, hey, there's this guy, Ben Josie, call him up. Uh, so... Mm-hmm. Little did we know. A year later, we'd be living together in a house in Nashville. <laughs> and uh, and yeah, but but I think it was around spring of senior year where we said, okay, we'd love to try doing this and see where it could take us.
1: That's awesome. It's kind of interesting that both of you had beginnings in middle school. I know Ben mentioned it in the talent show as well. You mentioned that a lot of this began to coalesce in your senior year spring. I, I was at the Frost performance, the student concert at Stanford. Was that like the culmination of? coming together
3: or yeah by that point I think we had a pretty good sense that we wanted to try to continue doing it after college but that was at the very least a validating moment for us to know that we were capable of if not blowing everybody away, at least holding our own on a stage
0: um, yeah like that it it really felt just like through all of senior year it was just kind of a, a slow and upward momentum a little bit where at the start of the year, we were putting together all the shows and just like sweaty backyard parties and they were so much fun, but it was just chaotic of us having to find speakers from three different houses, getting all the cables, you know, borrowing gear from other friends and and putting it together to, to just try to have a fun time. And then kind of as the year goes on, <clears throat> we were putting together more original songs. And when we played those at the show, they'd go pretty well and people would be kind of excited about the new stuff that we were putting out and so that was like a okay this is working and then uh and there'd be
3: like one person in the <laughs> crowd who'd know the lyric to like one original song and that would be so bad He'd be like, oh my god <sighs>
0: yeah one knows it yeah we were we were super lucky to have a, a good number of friends who were just super excited about the band and so every show even though it would be at a new house party or something there would be a bunch of our friends just staring at us and just juicing us up and giving us the energy at at a certain point during winter quarter of our senior year we said like hey these on-campus shows have been going pretty well why don't we try to get like a real gig um and so we talked to some people who played shows in around the bay area at different clubs and we found this place in redwood city called club Fox, which was just you know a real venue and we're like whoa, maybe we can get a chance to play at this real show where we don't have to set up our equipment and the stage isn't covered in beer stains and everything. And, you know, not not to say that we didn't enjoy those shows because we sure did. Um, but we end up getting a gig at Club Fox to open for a Billy Idol tribute band called Generation Idol, um, <laughs> which really meant a lot to me because growing up, Billy Idol was one of my first musical inspirations. I, I dressed this in for Halloween when I was like, 11 years old or something. Uh, And so that was really fun to to open for a Billy Idol tribute band. And Hard to understate how hyped we were to play both in
3: a real venue and open for a Billy Idol cover band. Like, this was a huge moment for us. We were so apt about this.
0: And we get to the venue, and on the big marquee, it says, like, Generation Idol and Mammoth. And that (laughs) was just for me a moment that I was like, whoa, this is something I always dreamed of, you know, getting my – name on the side of a venue and that was kind of one thing where it's like okay we can we can kind of maybe keep going in in this direction
1: yeah that's awesome i think it's it's humbling that you guys are that you guys said that you guys just held your own at frost because i was there and i was blown away and i just remember hearing the crowd too everyone was like wow like they're really good just from one (laughs) song to another the transitions were seamless the energy was there i was pumped the whole time, so. Thank
3: you so much, so, I think, seriously. Guys, can
1: you talk a little bit about the songwriting process? What did it look like to actually create music?
0: I think, uh, you know, since getting to Nashville, we, we see a lot of performances with songwriters where it's just somebody up on stage with an acoustic guitar. And I think that's really informed the way we still write kind of songs for a band because I think if, if it's the idea that if a song can hold up with just one person singing with an acoustic guitar, you know, the lyrics are good. The chord changes are interesting. The main rhythm is, is kind of interesting. If it can hold up with just that, then when you add in the drums and the bass and the organs, it's just going to make it even better, you know? But if you start with maybe a kind of weak, perhaps not that interesting song, like all the stuff you're going to add, it can make it more interesting, but it, it's tough to just change it into like something really special. And so I think we always try to start with that bare bones acoustic arrangement before we kind of bring it into, you know, filling it out with the other instruments in the band.
1: Yeah, it's kind of like making sure that the story and the message are there before and then amplifying it through, through the different pieces.
0: Yeah,
3: that yeah. Is,
1: that's an awesome
0: way to describe it.
3: And, and I think one of the coolest things to explore as a band is how you develop a a, an ever increasing stack of sounds and layering opportunities.
0: Yeah. And kind of the way that those, those tools just become instinctual and that, you know, we'll be playing a song and then we're like, this needs something else. And then somebody just automatically goes like, Oh, Henry, switch your, you know, piano sound to an organ sound and then just hold out the chords. And then, you know, that's maybe exactly what the song needed or Or it's not, but then we try the next option and it's just keep trying things until everything really fits perfectly together.
1: It's it's interesting because I think there's so many tools out there, but until you truly experience what the tool can do and you work it in in some way, then you realize the effect that it can have. And then like you know when it's needed. I guess it seems like we've started talking a little bit about Nashville. I'm kind of curious if uh, we can just hone in a little bit about why Nashville? What was the decision-making process in terms of having all these like, lives <laughs> coalesce into like, deciding to go to this yeah, one that's place? is my favorite story. The,
3: the decision-making process was we were thinking about going to LA. And then I had a call with my parents. And you know I was like, ah, the band's going to move to LA. And my mom goes, well, do you have a job? And I was like, well, no, I'm, I'm going to find one. She's like, well, do you have a car? Like, well, no, um, you know, I figure I can get around. She's like, you know, LA is pretty big. You can't, can't get around with a car. I was like, well, I'll get a job and then I'll get a car. Um, and she just kind of peeled back the layers of the absurdity of me moving <laughs> to LA at this point in my life with no real connections, no job and no car. So she said, well, why don't you come home for a few months and figure things out? you can live in the basement of our house and, you know, maybe you can start working your way to maybe moving out there. And I was like... Okay, um, moving back to my parents kind of sounds brutal, but what if the whole band moved into the basement of my <laughs> parents' home in Nashville? And that night, we were all actually in the studio together, finishing up the touches on our first single at the time, um, an old story. And I was like, hey, guys, w- w- what, do you, what do you think of this? How, how would this strike you fancy?
0: Jack goes like, hey, would you guys want to live in my parents' basement in Nashville? And then Tom, our guitarist at the time, no hesitation, just goes, I'm in. Like, yep, (laughs) I'm there. And then I was still kind of set on LA because I'd been thinking about it for months. Uh, But then it only took like 20 to 30 minutes of us kind of talking about it. And me realized like, hey, like, it's called Music City for a reason. The live music there is huge. It's way cheaper to live in than LA. It's probably a little bit more in line with our kind of like blues rock sound in LA and we're going to have a free place to stay as soon as we get there. Like, why would I not do that? At least for the summer, you know, and if, if Nashville ends up not being that great, then figure out the next step. But I just, it was nice to know where I was going and uh, man, have not looked back since on that decision. Like Nashville is, has been just amazing and has been so good to us.
1: That's awesome to hear. What was it actually like to experience Nashville? Was it what you expected um, it to be going in? Man,
0: you know, it, it was cool because I didn't really know that much about Nashville. I'd spent my whole life on the West Coast and I didn't really know that many people that were there. One of my best friends is a musician. and He said, you gotta keep this city on your radar. He was kind of saying it's one of the only cities in America where you can just be a full-time musician. It's the songwriter capital of the world and the cost of living is a lot cheaper than the other places that I was <clears throat> thinking about staying. We got there and immediately linked up with Henry Ingram, who was the bassist for Mammoth before I joined. And so he joined us on keyboards and then like within the first month of us being there, We played four shows in different places and venues throughout the city. And so in that time, you know, we're starting to meet people. Henry kind of plugs us into his group of friends. So we're starting to build a community. Um, And we just have had four opportunities to, to gig already, which is, you know, what we came out there to do. So right away, it seemed like definitely a place where we could kind of keep this band going.
1: That's a good welcome to the city, especially after making such a big decision that you, you were unsure which way is it going to go to have like this overwhelming response, like this was the right choice.
3: We, we were so blessed in that respect because we had, yeah, we had my parents, so we had a place to stay. We had instrumentalists down in Nashville, um, Henry and Henry's friend, Fred, who now lives with us. So we had a full five piece going to Nashville. It wasn't like we were going to have to go down there and find folks. Um, and then the community, is a really remarkable thing in Nashville. We have so many friends in the music community. And it happened a lot quicker than I might have expected. But there are lots of songwriters, lots of bands in Nashville. But you know, it's not a massive city. It's like 670,000 people. I don't necessarily know if this is true in other cities. I've heard it's not. But people in Nashville, it seems Work really hard to lift each other up because they recognize you know if my friend makes it, then I make it, um, or I have a better chance of making it
0: exactly because you know like if we if we get a slot at a really cool venue for a gig, like, we can't play that by ourselves we need to bring in a couple of our friends to to fill out the night so that the audience walks away with a good night of music and so uh, we bring our friends in and then, you know, our friends get a, a cool show and then hopefully they'll invite us to play. And I think that community cannot cannot be understated of, of why this place has been so amazing for us. And Nashville, the, the
3: music city thing can be kind of kitschy, but <laughs> it's a city focused on music. And the opportunities to go see live music are endless. The the building block, I think, of at least mm-hmm. the songwriting live community is this thing called the Round so you'll have a bar and you'll have a, a a small stage and four singer-songwriters lined up one after the other. And they'll have the stage for an hour, this group of four. And so one will play one song, another will play their song, another play their song, another play a song. And then it goes back and, and you'll have three rounds. And what happens is in these rounds, because they're often booked together by groups of friends, you'll have people playing in. On other songs and songs that are not theirs, but songs they're friends that they know or singing on harmony. So you get this loose band community feel, and at the same time, showcase four singer songwriters over the course of an hour. And if you stay in a bar for six hours, you know, say they start rounds at six and end it at midnight or one, you're seeing 24 individual acts over the course of the night. And you're often meeting. Each of these groups of of singer songwriters, as they're coming off the stage, and some you make a connection with, some you don't, know, some you might like their stuff, some you not, some you might not. But the opportunities to both meet people, see live music, and then meet the people who are playing it are—I don't, I don't, I can't imagine there's another city in the world with that level of intentional accessibility to the live music scene.
1: Wow, I have never heard of that before, and now I want to pay a trip to Nashville once the yeah. coronavirus situation yeah. ends and like, experience <laughs> yeah, that. Yeah, for... I
3: give it, give it a few months. but.
1: <laughs> Talking a little bit about Nashville, I'm kind of curious. It sounds like this really dynamic place that's conducive to this really strong music community. I'm kind of curious what um, the days look like.
3: Yeah, we both both have day jobs in normal times that occupy most of our days. And I'd say normally, you know, we probably are are guaranteed to see uh, some kind of live music both weekend nights and then for sure a couple weekday nights. This COVID has been a real bummer because A, our whole, you know, music lives are are built around the idea of playing in front of people. Um, But also our whole musical lives are built around seeing our friends play and
0: seeing other live shows. Yeah, exactly. I think, you know, Jack totally nailed it. it kind of felt like every time I go to a show or a songwriter round, like there's a little part of me that's just like studying, you know, I'm, I'm there to enjoy it. I'm there to be with my friends and, and support my friends that are on stage, but also just like every time I see a performance, I'm, I'm learning more, like what are the parts of this performance that work really well? What are the parts that I may might kind of adjust for next time I'm on stage? It's just kind of the best of both worlds because I'm loving it and I'm learning from it.
1: That's nice to hear. It looks like we we have a question from Samina in the chat. It says, "I'm curious, in what ways um, has your Stanford education influenced your work as a band?"
0: That's a great question. Um, let's see. I think uh, I mean for me personally, I was my major was music science technology. So so kind of half of that was the traditional music theory, ear training, guitar lessons, and the other side of my major was the the technical piece and i got really into building midi controllers and electronic instruments and circuitry jack did
1: you have any
3: yeah i'd say i got a foundation that there's a guy named owen Callery who taught the basics of digital audio workstations and did a really good job of just getting you in the studio and saying hey just try creating something it doesn't matter if it's yours doesn't matter if it's a cover just pick up an instrument you know mic it up and see what happens
0: his his influence on us was so huge because we were a rock band and so it there were not many people that i think understood what we were trying to do and owen was one of those people that had recorded plenty of rock bands in his life and so not only would he teach us how to you know do sound recording but he taught us how to be a live rock band and I, I just remember he's, there were plenty of things where he was saying, you know, like the recording aspect is important, but first and foremost, focus on the live show. Because if your live show is awesome and you guys are a super tight live band, then when you go into the studio, that will transfer and it'll make the recording process so much easier. Owen was, was definitely my biggest mentor that I had uh, throughout my time at Stanford. Um, I was very lucky to, to know him and work with him.
1: That's really cool to hear. It's nice to see the direct and like the indirect mix of influences from your time at Stanford and seeing how it's not just the formal learning that you get at an educational institution. So looking into the future, you guys have two great singles out, The Phone and Rest of Our Lives. I'm kind of curious, are you guys able to give us any like information to what the, what the future looks like in terms of the <laughs> band?
3: We've got, we've got five or six singles ready to go that we're going to release over the next um, you know x number of months and then the goal is trying to put together some sort of album after that we're constantly learning and so we're taking it as it comes um, trying to make as much good stuff as we can and you know hopefully putting putting something more complete out by the end of the year
0: yeah we're just you know we're we're really excited about the songs we've got recorded i think all of them are very different from one another, which to me is really exciting that I think we were, we've got just so many influences that we are able to kind of explore different directions with each song. And we're just really excited for everybody to hear them. And, and just, you know, there's just so many people that we're, we're excited to share these with and we just, we just hope people dig them and they put a smile on people's faces.
1: I'm excited to hear them as they as they start trickling out one by one over the, the next few months. One last random question. I forgot to ask this earlier, but you guys switched from Mammoth to Sloan Wooly. I guess, can you talk a little bit about that change?
0: Yeah. Uh, so basically, last spring when we were seniors, we had been working on our first single, An Old Story, and we were distributing it through, I think we were using TuneCore at the time, and... When the song was first uploaded, we didn't have a Spotify page, so it was uploaded to another band that was called Mammoth. And then when you'd look up on Spotify, you'd search Mammoth, there'd be about th- 1,300 bands that had that name, <laughs> that all had music. And so, I, think, we, I up- think
3: our song got uploaded to like a prog metal Mammoth. I yeah. think that was the, the genre of the band. It was like really, really math-rocky. <laughs> crazy stuff going on. <laughs> yeah. All right. They were awesome. They were awesome. Yeah.
0: But uh, <laughs> basically, we kind of understood that, like, hey, there will be a time where we have to change our name because we need a unique name, that one that hasn't been taken before. And January of this year is when we recorded all these songs. We got the opportunity to do that at a studio here in Nashville called Sputnik Sound. And so we were kind of thinking, like, okay, these – we're really excited about these songs. This is the time that we're gonna change our name. And then we agonized over the name change. That was by far the hardest thing that we've had to do as a band, because it's gotta be something that every single member is just so excited about. Cause if anybody feels like, eh, about it, like they've gotta live with that for the en- entire life of the band. Jack, do you wanna take over from here? <laughs> <laughs> yeah we I mean we kind of yeah I'd,
3: I'd say we just kind of stumbled into into the idea of Sloan and then um, we had Wooly from Mammoth basically so we you yeah. know we put him together we thought it sounded cool we thought it sounded unique we knew we had the domain name and we we jumped at the chance
1: that's a very interesting backstory to to hear where the song was uploaded and like the categorical difference that was there too Thanks for taking the time today. This is super exciting.
3: Thank you guys so much. To be honest, this is, I think, the first time we've ever told this story in this kind of setting. And I don't know about Ben, but it was, it was very cathartic for me and really, yeah. really fun. So um, thank you guys so much for
0: having us. And if uh, anybody that's listened to this, you know, wants to hear more about Nashville, feel free to hit us up. Uh, if it's not clear, we'd love talking about this city. Um, yeah. <laughs> so super happy to, try to
3: convince anybody uh, at sloanwoolly at gmail.com hit us up
1: (laughs) yeah they have a website and their music is out on all platforms so definitely take a listen perfect
3: awesome thank Thank you so much richard
1: Richard. thank you samina thank you you. joy meeting y'all well, that concludes it for today's podcast. I hope you all had a really good time learning more about Clarissa Carter and the band Sloan Wooley. I definitely recommend checking out their music, which is available on all platforms, including Spotify and Apple Music. Thank you.
2: That concludes today's episode of our podcast, Drop the Mic, Music Industry Conversations.
0: Thank you to all of our guests for spending their time with us and sharing their stories about their experiences with music at Stanford and beyond.
2: We'd also like to thank Tony Rodriguez for composing this season's theme music.
0: Tune in next Monday at 8 a.m. Pacific, 11 a.m. Eastern, as we wrap up season
1: one of Drop the Mic.
2: We're the Stanford students that helped put this season together. To hear all our episodes, check us out on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stay up to date with everything we're working on, including a playlist that features all our musical guests from season one, and our social media accounts where we post sneak peeks of what's to come, check out our website at dropthemiccast.com.
1: This has been Drop
0: the Mic. Thanks for tuning in. We can't wait to share more with you next week.